So Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You may be seated, and we'll take a moment to reflect on God's word. Through the back. I have a book at home titled Letters of the Century. And it's 400, it's a collection of 400 letters written between 1900, the year 1900, and the year 2000. And they've sort of put them in decades, so you get a sense of the events of. century as you read through the book. Included in the book is a letter from a World War II, World War I soldier who's in Paris and he is writing back to his fiancée. He got engaged before he went off to the war and he's sitting in Paris just about ready to get some orders and so he writes a letter back to his fiancée. And by the time she gets it, he has been killed in the war. So you read the letter with that kind of lens, that kind of perspective. There's a very interesting letter written in the 50s uh, of a mom, an expecting mother. And this pregnant woman writes to Jonas Salk, who is the person who invented the polio vaccine. And she just writes him, she never met Jonas Salk, but she just writes back to him saying, thank you. Thank you that as a mother, I will not ever have to worry about this disease taking over the life of my child. In the next page, there's a very interesting letter from Jonas Salk to Eleanor Eleanor Roosevelt. And talking about his inspiration to find the vaccination because of the life of her husband. 
And so as you, as you sort of file through the book, I mean, some of the pages are, I mean, some of the letters are two or three sentences and some of them are several pages. And as fascinating as it is when you, when you're reading them, you get the sense that you're opening up someone else's mail. I mean, it really wasn't meant for you, but you get a, a look inside of what was happening in the life of somebody or maybe the life of a nation. And that's exactly what happens when we open up to Jeremiah chapter 29. We are reading someone else's mail. This is Jeremiah's letter to a specific group of people, the exiles in Babylon. And he's writing from Jerusalem and he's writing this letter from verse 4 all the way to verse 23 and trying to give them some advice. Now, what has happened is you'll remember that Judah had separated away from Israel, the northern country, and Israel had been taken captive by the Assyrians. And so we're just left with sort of God's people in Judah, a very small geographic area, and the center city was Jerusalem. And at this time, around 600 B.C., the dominating world force was the Babylonian Empire, the Northern Empire, and it was casting this great heavy shadow over this little country of Judah. And there was a great king at that time, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar. And what was happening at that point was Nebuchadnezzar would come down and he would make these sort of invasions into Judah. And, of course, he was doing this in other places of the world as well. And he would pick off certain groups of people and he would take those people back to Babylon, the capital city. In 605, he makes one of these invasions and probably one of the most famous people of the Bible he takes out of Jerusalem. And that young boy, his name was Daniel. In 597, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he picks off Ezekiel. And then in 586, finally, Jerusalem falls to Babylon altogether. In 2 Kings 24, at the end of the book, uh, describes the inv- one of the invasions like this. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon the king of Israel had made for the people. And he carried into exile all of Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men and all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. And only the poorest people of the land were left. It's just a little interesting to me that Jeremiah was left. He just was not seen as somebody who was a valuable. He wasn't in the top 10,000. And so he's left back and thousands of people are being deported now to Babylon. And so I think it's helpful to, for us to understand what the, um, the military strategy of Nebuchadnezzar was. He's invading this country and other countries as well. He's picking off sort of the the cream of the crop, the best 10,000. He's taking them back into Babylon. And his hope is, is that if he can uh, give them um, a place to live, if he can give them a good education, he can give them a place of influence, then, then he can get the people to assimilate into the Babylonian culture. If I can get the best and the brightest minds to come into the Babylonian culture and assimilate into the Babylonian culture, then I'll have conquered those people and then I'll 
easily conquer their poorest people. And you see this unfolding in Daniel chapter 1. You can go home today and just read Daniel chapter 1 and you'll feel the pressure of assimilation by this king onto Daniel and his friends. So when Jeremiah wrote this particular letter to the exiles that were living in in Babylon, there, there were thousands of Jewish people living in this city. And not only, not only were there thousands of Jewish people, there were the Babylonian people, and then there were people from all other nations. The cream of the crop from all other nations were pouring into Babylon. And so you could think of Babylon as being this melting pot because everybody was bringing in their culture, they were bringing in their religious ideas, and here you have the people of God now stuck in this pluralistic society with all kinds of religions and all kinds of cultural practices. And as the Jewish people were adjusting to this massive shift in the culture, and they were going from being the majority status to a very tiny minority status, they were asking questions like this. How do we live in a pluralistic society? I mean, we came out of a society that everybody believed in the one true God, and now we're in this society that people have all kinds of beliefs. How do we live in a, in a melting pot? How do we survive in a in what's really now a secular nation. Those questions sound familiar? Do you see how Jeremiah's letter can serve us because we find ourselves asking these same kinds of questions? Gosh, I, I feel like I'm in a, in a melting pot. I, I go to my school or I go to my work or I meet the new neighbors and it just feels like there's all kinds of different religious ideas and, and it feels like I'm mostly in the minority. And how do I, how do I survive in that kind of environment? How do I navigate myself through this, how do I how do I stay here and embrace the city without assimilating into the environment? Those are the kinds of questions that Jeremiah will help us with this morning. I want to look at uh, this passage in this way. Uh, Jeremiah, I think, helps us to identify two pressures to resist. As we're trying to answer those questions for ourselves, how do we do that here now in the year 2008? I think he identifies two pressures that we should resist. And then he gives us some what I call the rules of engagement. How, how is it we do engage? And then he points to the power to engage. I mean, if you understand what to do, then how am I going to have the energy or the passion to do what's being required? So let's look at these uh, two pressures, I think, that he helps us see to resist. One of the pressures, obviously, is coming from Babylon itself, and that's the pressure of assimilation. Now, I want to ask for a show of hands here of who's a Star Trek fan, and specifically Star Trek The Next Generation. But if you're a fan of, of that series, then welcome. I'm glad you're here, because I'm a fan of that series. And you'll hear in that idea of assimilation that the creepy voice of the Borg. 
You will be assimilated. I wish I could whisper it. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. And this creepy sort of uh, man-machine person is, is going to assimilate the poor little Star Trek Enterprise and on the whole world. And so one of the resistance, one of the things that we have to resist, and Daniel does such a wonderful job of showing us how to do it, we should resist just total assimilation. Daniel is brought from Jerusalem into Babylon. He's given a new name. So his Jewish name is changed to a name that you would recognize if you live in Babylon. He's given the best education. He's given a position of influence. He's given a nice place to live. Daniel comes into Babylon. He's He's been given a good education. He's been given a good place of influence. All of his needs for comfort have been met. Hear the strategy? You feel the strategy? Nebuchadnezzar was convinced if you take even the most committed person, you give them a good education. You give them positions of influence. You meet all their physical needs that in a couple of generations they'll have forgotten about their own God. See, it's so easy to think all that matters is if I have enough education. If I have some position of influence, if my physical needs are being met, then God can just so easily slip to the back seat. And if you have one generation that thinks that just in a couple of more generations, then you'll have a whole people group who once were committed to sacrificing and serving the living God totally numb to really what it means to sacrifice. Can you imagine a strategy like that working? Well, that's the strategy that Nebuchadnezzar had implemented. And so Daniel resists, and you can read about that for yourself. But what's so uh, fascinating about Daniel and what makes Daniel so great at the VBS or you know in your, your children's Bible studies is because here is a young man, a teenager, and these... His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four teenage boys, they go right into the heart of the public square where all the tension is the greatest, and they don't assimilate. And they have a massive influence on the whole culture. Four teenage boys planted in the center of the culture, simply willing to not assimilate, have a massive influence on the whole culture. So you and I don't want to be be assimilated. The second pressure we want to resist is separation. 
If you read back in uh, chapter 27 and 28, Jeremiah actually refers to it in verse uh, 8 and 9 about these false prophets. There was a false prophet named Hananiah. And Hananiah was writing the same thing. He's writing a letter to the exiles. And Hananiah is saying, okay, what's going to happen here is God is going to rescue you in a couple of years. And so what you need to do is just huddle together, hold on, and God's going to rescue you out of this situation. So don't get involved with the city. It's, it's okay if you use the city. To, to sort of su- supply your needs and to supply your little group or family, that's okay, but don't venture into the city. Find, find a place on the other side of the river, see if you can get together and huddle together as a group. Don't lose your identity. Don't go into the city by any means. You don't want the city to have any influence on your, on you, so huddle together outside of the city and just hold on. God's gonna rescue you out of this situation. And Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles and say, that is a lie. That is not what God wants you to do. But, but there seems to be in the Bible a, a thread that runs through the Bible that you see that there's, it's so easy to fall off the assimilation side and it's so easy to fall off the separation side. That the people who, who become God's people, become the religious people, become the, the sort of moral people, easily find themselves sort of backing away from the city and sort of separating themselves away from those people. What is the book of Jonah about? It's not about a guy who gets a three-day ride in the belly of a whale. What's amazing about the book of Jonah is what the book of Jonah is about is that God loves this terribly wicked city called Nineveh. That's the whole point of the book. That God Almighty would love the worst city on the planet. And he has decided, I'm going to send one of my guys into the city. And in the story of of Jonah, who's the antagonist? Who is the person who's getting in the way of God's idea to love the city? Jonah! Jonah, you're, you're my guy. You're the guy who's supposed to be getting into the city. And at the very end of the book of Jonah, where is Jonah? He's outside the city and he's trying to make a living underneath this plant. You see, the the moral, the religious people, it's very easy to begin to separate yourself away from the city. And when Jesus Christ comes to earth and he's in the house of the sinners and the tax collectors, who's outside? The religious people. And what are they saying? We don't go in there. We don't have dinner with those people. If you're going to be a religious type, if you're going to be a moral type, you've got to separate yourself away from the city. You see it again in the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son comes home. The rebellious son comes home. And at the end of the parable, the father's in Side the home with the most rebellious. And who's outside? The elder brother. 
The person who's keeping the rules is on the outside. There's always that tension. It's, it, you can feel it even now in yourself. Wh- which one are you? Are you you're more likely to be an assimilation person? I mean, if you took the cross off your neck and you took the fish off your back of your car and you lose, if you lost just a few spiritual jargon terms, what would... Would the population know that you were a Christian? Would they be able to tell that you were really different? Or are you more on the separatist side? Do you think of the city, well, I can make a living here, but I sort of go in, I make my living, and then I come back to my tribe, my church, or my family and, and I'm, I'm trying to make sure there's no influence at all in those two realms. And I, and I, and I, of course I would never say this, but I look down at people who don't have God. I'm a little better than they are. If you think that way, then you're a separatist. That, that pressure comes at us from both ends and it's very difficult to try to manage that. It's very difficult to try to manage it for your family. Jeremiah gives us some help here on some rules of engagement. Let's look at verse 5. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Don't, Don't decrease. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord for the city. I mean, if you were now having to, to get a three-point sermon out of this text, you could do it right now. You could just take these three verses and say, okay, what are the three things that Jeremiah is saying? Well, number one, he's saying, move in, buy, don't rent. That would be your point number one. He wants you to move into the city. Number two, seek the welfare of the city, the peace and prosperity you might have in your uh, translation. And, and then I'm supposed to pray for the city. That'd be your three-point outline. Pretty, that'd be a pretty good outline, and I'll talk about a couple of those things. But I think there's, there's a point here to be made and to be seen, actually, before we look at those three things. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, Thus says the Lord of hosts to all the exiles, I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. And I think one of the key components for us is to have the right mindset of where we are. Before we look at what we might do, it's helpful to have something in our mind to help us operate. The Lord of hosts. What does a host do? A host of a party arranges the events of a party. If you're going to a dinner party, the host says, Mr. Phillips, I'd like you to sit here. The host is arranging everything that's happening and making sure everything's provided just as the host would like. 
And so God Almighty is the host. He's the host of the whole world. And He has looked down in the year 2008 and He has picked you out. And as a host, He is saying to you and your family and you as a career and you in a neighborhood, He's saying, I would like for you on my behalf to sit down right here. So you and I are not here in Wilmington, North Carolina by any accident. We have come into this world and we have said, God, you're the host. Where would you like me to sit? And he's saying, I'd like you to sit right here. And so God has sent his people from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, my guess is some of the Jewish people sitting there were thinking, oh, great. This is a sorry city to be ended up in. I hate this secular city. What a pagan place. All these people with these different ideas. I just got the lousiest draw to have to be here right now. Why couldn't I have been born like a hundred years ago? And God is saying, look, I have moved your table designation, people. You are sitting over here, and because I'm the host, I'm deciding to pick up your name, and thus my name, and I'm deciding to put you over here. You're not a captive. You're a missionary. You're not stuck in some place. You've been sent to some place. And that is a completely different mindset when we go out into the world. Because I believe so many of us feel like I'm just stuck in my school. I'm stuck in my job. And God's saying, you're not stuck. You're sent. I am the Lord of hosts. You're not anywhere by accident. I have sent you to your family. You're not stuck in your family. I have sent you to Wilmington. You're not stuck in Wilmington. I have sent you, Paul Phillips, to this pulpit. You are not stuck here. I have sent you to the year 2008. You're not stuck in this time frame. You, by the Lord of hosts, have been sent. You are on a mission for God in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and in this city. You're not stuck here. You're sent. And so just orienting our mindset, before we think about what we should be doing, we need to understand the Lord of hosts has picked us up and He has put us in a very specific place for very specific people. We're not captives. We're missionaries here. I think when when I think about this passage from Philippians chapter 1 and the Apostle Paul who's been doing all this great church building. I mean, he's the best church builder there is. And he's planting all these thriving churches all over the continent over there. And what happens is he gets arrested and he gets put in prison. And I am sure, I'm, I'm fairly certain at some point he thought, I'm stuck in this prison. 
I mean, so many good things were happening, and now it's just, I'm stuck. And I believe he began to learn something in the prison, and this is what he says. Now, I want you to know, brothers, Philippians chapter 1, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's not what I would have naturally thought. I, I, I thought I got stuck in this prison, but now what I realize, I've been sent to the prison. I've been sent here because the whole palace guard is hearing about the gospel. And if I hadn't been sent to this prison, I wouldn't have, been, I wouldn't have had any chance to speak the gospel to these people. If you feel stuck, if you feel like a captive, you're always going to be trying to disengage. You're always going to try to escape. I just don't want to have anything more to do with that group. I'm, I'm trying to find ways to distance myself. But if you're a missionary, you're always looking for ways to engage. If you come to a new culture as a missionary, you're eagerly seeking out ways to engage and to help people of any kind of stripe. It doesn't matter because you've been sent. And so that's the, that's the passion that Jeremiah wants us to have. You've been sent here. Look around. Seek opportunities to help people of all kinds of religion and race and economic status. Well, let's get to the three points that Paul talks about. I want to just mention a couple of them. Verse 5. He tells Jeremiah, and then he's telling his people this, I want you to build houses and plant gardens. Build and plant. I want you to build and plant. I kept thinking about that little phrase, build and plant. Where have I heard build and plant before? Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10. This is the call of Jeremiah. Very important passage. Jeremiah 1.10 See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And this is what I have set you to do. To pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, and to, to build and plant. Now, now what just got me thinking about this is the humor of God. I was actually sitting on a bench at the YMCA, and I'm just thinking about it. I think this, and I'm laughing out loud. And some guys around me are like, he's one of those strange guys that you don't have a conversation with. Because I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, yes, isn't this just like God? What do you think Jeremiah was thinking when he got this call? Jeremiah, you are going to build and plant. Where do you think Jeremiah thought his building and planting was going to happen? In Jerusalem. I mean, this is God's hometown. God sort of lives here. And if I'm going to do any building or planting, it's going to be right here because this is sort of God's country. And what does he find out 25 years later? 
God wants to build and plant at the darkest place in the universe. It was completely upside down from what Jeremiah must have thought in Jeremiah 1.10. He's actually interested in taking his name to the darkest corner of the planet. And where do you hear that in the New Testament? Peter, who do you think that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right, Peter. And on this rock, on that statement that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, I will build my church where? Where is he going to build the church? Where is he going to build and plant the church? It's the same language. I am going to build my church at the nicest suburb in Wilmington. Is that what does it say? The safest city there is. I am going to build my church at the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail. So God's people are sent, and they are sent to the darkest places, and the darkest place might be your family. And it might be your neighbor, and it might be your workplace, and it might be some place in this city, and it might be some place around the globe. But that's his heart. That's what Jeremiah learns. He learns about God's heart. It's for the least and the lost. That's what Jesus has come for. And so one of the things that when we have this mindset, our course of action is to say, yeah, I know... I know where God wants us to plant. It's out into the city. And you see in your handout today, and it has a little outline on the back of it. I liked this picture when it when I saw it in a magazine, it captured my attention. It was the picture of, you know, you're inside the church, but the real effort needs to be moving out. See, people outside the church are not going to break down the walls to get in. But the people inside the church need to punch a hole in their wall and say, it's time for us to move out. And so we superimpose a picture here of Wilmington. And so part of what we'll talk about tonight in terms of a vision is as we move into our building, the easiest thing for us to do is to barricade ourselves off from the very city in which we've been planted in. And so we need to be thinking creatively, collectively and individually. How can we break through the wall and move out into our city? In what ways can that happen? And that's what Jeremiah is telling the exiles. Exiles, don't huddle together. Don't be assimilated. But move out and engage the city. Verse 7. Seek. Seek the welfare, seek the peace and prosperity. Seeking in this Hebrew context is you're looking for something very valuable. You've lost a $20 bill. You've lost your cell phone. You can't find the remote. And so you're seeking, you're turning up over and around, looking around. I know it's around here somewhere, my car keys, why can't I find them? 
And you turn things over trying to find these things that have value. And God's saying, I want you to think that way about your city. Turn everything over. Look around. Seek the, the peace and prosperity. And in the Hebrew, the word is shalom. You've heard that word before. It's not just peace like everybody's happy. It's peace economically. It's peace politically. It's, it's peace educationally. It's peace judicially. It's peace in every area. Go out, Christ Community Church, into Wilmington, North Carolina, and seek the peace and prosperity of every person in the city. Not just people that are like you. Because when the whole city rises up, you rise up. And I'm sending you like salt out into the world, as Jesus would say. To every corner. Not just to the people that know Christ, but to all people. And I want you to be for them. I want you to look at the people who don't know Christ. And I want you to love those people. Not look down your nose at them. Not think you're better than them. Not separate yourself away from them. Not assimilate, but engage and embrace those people. That's the kind of people I want want to have sent out to the world, God is saying. Uh, Finally, it's hard for us to appreciate how difficult this must have been for the Jewish mind. These people have killed many of our own sons and daughters. They have made us go on this thousand-mile march, and now I'm, I'm going to love these people? And we're not just talking the garden variety, you know, pagan. We're talking about the person who really has it in for you. How are you going to have the power? Where are you going to get the power to engage people that are like that? And the answer is that the people of God get their power and passion from God. The God who has moved towards them, even though they themselves have been God's enemy. The people of God understand what it means to be an enemy of God. And they have seen Almighty God move towards them to engage them, to embrace them, even though they were the worst enemies. And because God has moved towards His people in that way, and I recognize that about myself, I can now move out into the world. Throughout Jeremiah, God has been calling out to His people. And He calls out through Jeremiah for 40 years. And as far as I can tell, He does, he does everything He can. He calls his people a lot of unpleasant names from the pulpit. He breaks pottery. 
He, he does all kinds of things. He takes the pulpit and he moves it outside and he starts talking to the people who are coming in saying, you, 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 you've got a problem. He does this for 40 years and the people do not respond. In fact, they keep going in the other direction. They're, they're so self-absorbed, they don't have time to look at, look at God. They're always looking at themselves. And now in this letter with these people who have done this for 40 years and even longer, listen to this part of the letter. For thus says the Lord, verse 10, When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I'm going to visit you. Verse 11. Hey, I know, I know the plans I have for you. If you had spent your whole lifetime saying, God, I would like your gifts, but I do not want you. And you'd spent your whole life living that way. And then God comes to you and says, hey, you. I've got a plan for you. Would you want to hear that plan? I mean, I'm thinking if the reader sort of took a breath here, I know the plans I have for you, stop. And the Jewish mind is thinking, I know the plans I have for you. Okay, people who have ignored God. People who have used His gifts for their own pleasure. People who are supposed to be representing God, but really are representing themselves. Uh, You know, I'm not sure I want to... Yeah, let's stop the letter there. I'm not sure I want to know the plans He has for me. (laughs) The stunning news, the great news is He looks at His people and He says, I have a plan for you, a plan for your prosperity, a plan for your peace. And then he has to add, because this is what the people are thinking, not to harm you. And I wonder how many of us think here, I think God's out to get me. He's paying me back for the things I didn't do. And he's looking at these people who have been so wayward, and he's saying, I still have a plan for you. You wouldn't believe it. It's a great plan. I'm still moving towards you, even though you're moving away from me. After all you've done, God still has a plan for you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought, no matter how far away you've gotten, He has a good plan for you. The ultimate fulfillment of that, and we know it on this side of the cross, is the person of Christ. John 1.14, the Word, or Jesus, became flesh, and He dwelt among us. What did Jesus do? Eugene Peterson says it in his book, The Message. He moved into the neighborhood. He started rubbing shoulders. He started eating what we eat. 
You know, if there was ever anyone qualified to be a religious elite, it was Jesus. But he moved into the city instead of staying outside of it. He didn't come to the world for his own welfare. He wasn't seeking his own peace and prosperity. He was seeking our peace and prosperity. He was giving us a hope and a future. By taking all of the things that you've said and all of the things that you've done and all of your mindset to move away from God, He came and He took that on Himself on the cross and said, I'm doing this for your eternal peace and prosperity. All of the riches now at the cross of that I have have been transferred eternally to you. They're now in your possession. And once we really understand that, once we understand how much God has loved us, then we can move out to the city and love other people. The Apostle John says it this way in his one of his letters. We love. Why? Why do we love? Because he first loved us. The only way you can really love is to know that you've been loved. See, once you understand <laughs> that you don't have to go out to the city to make a name for yourself. You don't have to go out to the city to prove yourself. You don't have to go out to the city to be somebody. To make a reputation. All of what you need has been completely supplied in the person of Christ. And now, because all of my supplies are coming from Christ, I can go out and give to the city. Because I don't need anything from the city. I'm here to give. I'm sent as a missionary to give. It may be that you're here this morning and you're spending your life trying to build a good name. You're trying to build a good reputation. And one reason you're doing it is you're hoping that when you meet God, you can hand Him that good name. Say, see? See the good things that I did? Hey, I know I wasn't perfect, but I've got a pretty good reputation. And the gospel says that reputation isn't going to make it. But what he wants you to see and me to see is, see, I came to your city. And I came to give you my good name. And I came to give you my reputation. So that when you get to heaven and meet God, you can say, here's my reputation. Here's my name. Jesus Christ. And once that's met, then if you're a disciple, you see, you can go. You can go to your classroom. You can go to your neighborhood. You can go to your business. You can go out to the city into the darkest places and you can be planted there for God because He supplied all of your needs. It's hard not to assimilate. It's hard not to separate. It's difficult to engage and embrace, but we get that from the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I have no doubt 
that every person here feels the tension of assimilation and separation. And there are some people here who have assimilated. And I pray that they would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be able to see places that need to be reoriented around you and not around themselves or around the culture. There are people here who have separated. They don't tell anybody, but they're better than the people who are lost. And it's just so hard to get that out of our minds sometimes. And so I, I am praying that we would see from this letter to Jeremiah and from the Word, the ultimate letter that was sent to this planet, the person of Christ, how to, how you engaged us, the worst sinner we know is ourselves, how you embraced us, how you loved us, and how you provided grace for us. So that as we now leave this place, this week, this year, the rest of our lives, and we live in this city, that no matter the person, no matter the culture, no matter the religious context that the person comes out of, we could love this city. Everyone in this city we could love. Because you first loved us. Lord, as we come and give of our money, not just time or attention, it's part of the worship service to recognize that all of these good gifts have really come from you and we could never give enough back. But you gave. You gave enough. And out of our generosity in our hearts, I pray that we would generously give for your kingdom to spread throughout this city this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.